Wow, two great songs. We started off with, I am a friend of God. Jesus said, I no longer call you servants. I no longer call you slaves, but I call you my brother. I call you my friend. And then what an apropos song to say, call on the name of the Lord. You're a child of God. It's your privilege to call on the name of the Lord. No matter what trials come your way, no matter what tribulations come your way, no matter what mess you get yourself into, the Lord Jesus Christ loves you and wants to hear from you. And he is awake, like, like uh, Elder Larry said, day and night you can call on him. 3 a.m. and 3 p.m. He's ready and available to hear from you. We started a series, Chasing God's Heart. I had the privilege of uh, preaching a message with Pastor Dave Hurtado and uh, Pastor Paul Crandall. Last week, uh, Pastor Hurtado spoke on the proving ground. Man, that's a tough place to be, <laughs> in the proving ground. Basically, the Lord's saying, I'm going to put you in the cauldrons of trials. I'm going to take you through tribulations, and I'm going to develop you as the man I want you to be, the king that I want over my people. See, King David wasn't a man that just rose up and became a king over people or a people. God set him up as a king over his people and trained him as a man he wanted him to see, that he wanted him to be over his people. Uh, Some of the things that he touched on, man, if you're feeling inadequate, Feeling too small for the job God's called you to do? 2 Corinthians chapter 1 is such an encouraging chapter. The illustration he used was uh, David going to the, the battle line. And David standing there, and Goliath is yelling out curses against Israel and against the God, Jehovah. And he's standing there, and uh, he's going forward to fight. And he goes into the king's tent, and the king is going to put on his armor. And David's putting on his armor, and I think God is telling us, giving him a message. You're too small for the job. Being a king is big shoes to fill. But I'm going to take you through some trials. I'm going to take you through the refiner's fire to develop you as a man I want you to be. Um, Pastor Dave went on to talk on other things about this young shepherd boy becoming a man, feeling inadequate in his own eyes feeling too small for the job he's been called to do, but the Lord giving him victory, the Lord training him up. To this title, and the the second one in the the series, the message, just titled, titled it, In One Night. Isn't it amazing all the things that can happen in one night? Wow. One night can send your life in a totally different direction that you never imagined was possible. Just think what could happen in just one night. Could you fall from grace in one night? Could you become a thief in just one night? Could you become an adulterer? Could you become a murderer in just one night? Where can sin take you? One thing that just I love about the Bible that just encourages my soul is that it wrote down all the sins of the mighty men. Isn't that a relief? Chuck Swindoll says, I appreciate so much that the canon has been closed, that all the scripture has been written, because if there was another chapter added, it might have had his name on it. What if it had your name on the next chapter? Oh, we'd have Sunday school teachers teaching about it. We'd have uh, preachers preaching about you. We'd have movies made about how you rose to stardom and how far you fell because of your sins. Everybody that reads the Bible knows David's sins. Everybody that reads the Bible has preached about it, has taught about it, has made movies about it. So not only do the people who have read the Bible know about it, everybody else who hasn't read the Bible has seen the movie about it. And knows the sins of David. Hopefully, they got the message of redemption also. It's a little bit about David. He's a man of God. He's a faithful shepherd. He follows through with all the jobs that he's been given. He's a valiant warrior. He's a warrior poet. That's for the choir. He's a composer of psalms. 
He's a wise leader of his people. We want to jump all the way over from 1 Samuel to 2 Samuel chapter 8. I want to summarize it real quick, um, the rise of King David. It goes on to summarize in chapters uh, in chapter 5 through 8. Chapter 8, it summarizes and tells about all the victories. Basically, David has conquered all the people around his borders. He has peace around his borders. And he has achieved the promised land promised in the Abrahamic covenant. It was promised to Abraham, but David got to see it fulfilled in his lifetime. It said twice in chapter 8, and the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. As we go through, and we go to chapter 11 is where we're going to wind up going, chapter 11 and 12, we got to remember, we have to remember, the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. The end of chapter 8 says, And David administered justice and equity to all of his people. He was a righteous king. He was a good king. He was a wise king. He administered justice and equity to all who called upon him in his kingdom. He was a man after God's own heart. Chapter 9, it's amazing to see the Christ archetype here. Mephibosheth is a son of Jonathan. King David, his best friend, a man that he loved like a brother, made a covenant with him that said, if I become king, I will take care of anyone in your family. Mephibosheth was crippled. It's amazing in an eastern king, anyone with a deformity or illness was not allowed to sit at his table. But King David said, because of my covenant, I will allow Mephibosheth to eat at my table, and he will have a permanent seat all the days of his life. Because I loved his father, Jonathan, and I'm showing him the same kindness and love. It's an archetype of Christ because we are Mephibosheth. We are the one that's come with a disease of sin in our life, and Christ says, I'm going to forgive you, and I'm going to show you love, and I'm going to put you at a place at my table for eternity. Luke chapter 12 finishes the archetype where Christ, the king, the majesty, the savior of the world, the creator of the universe, says he's going to put on a servant's cloth and come and serve you at his banquet table. Wow, what a picture of redemption and love. As we go on to read, we're going to start with chapter 11. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, one evening, David got up from his bed and walked around the roof of the palace. From the rooftop, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. She had purified herself from uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. So David sent this word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with the master's servants and did not go down to his house. When David was told Uriah did not go home, he asked him, haven't you come from a long journey? Why didn't you go home? Uriah said to David, The ark of Israel and Israel and Judah are staying in tents, and my master Joab and my lord's men are camped in the open field. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and lie with my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. Then David said to him, 
Stay here one more day, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David, at David's invitation, he ate and drank with him, and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants. He did not go home. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, Put Uriah on the front where the fighting is fiercest. Then withdraw from him, and he will be struck down and die. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the fiercest and strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. Joab sent David a full account of the battle. He instructed the messenger, When you have finished giving the king this account of the battle, the king's anger may flare up, and he may ask you, Why did you get so close to the city to fight? Didn't you know they would shoot arrows from the wall? Who, who killed Abimelech, son of Jerobesheth? <laughs> Didn't a woman throw an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died in Thebes? Why did you get so close to the wall? If he asked this, then say to him, Also your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. The messenger set out, and when he arrived, he told David everything Joab had sent him to say. The messenger said to David, The men overpowered us and came out against us in the open, but we drove them back to the entrance of the city gate. Then the archers shot arrows at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's men died. Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. David told the messenger, Say to Joab, Don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as another. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage Joab. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. When you have a temptation, you have to know that temptation is not sin. When a thought enters your mind to sin against the Lord, the thought that enters your mind is not a sin. What it is, is it's time to do battle to get rid of the thought out of your mind. When that thought enters in, you have to flee. You have to call upon the name of the Lord because when that thought becomes a desire and that desire becomes lust, it winds up in sin. 1 Corinthians 6, flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body. But the immoral man sins against his own body. 2 Timothy 2, now flee from youthful lust and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. So he's not just saying flee or don't do that, but replace that with something else. As you flee from youthful lust, pursue righteousness, pursue love and peace, but do it with others who call upon the name of the Lord. You can get caught up in a temptation and start to lead to lust and sin. Flee from the youthful temptation, but run to a friend. Run to a brother or sister in the Lord who will stand with you and fight with you through the temptation so that you don't fall. There are many brothers and sisters here, and I see their faces, and I know that they are here, and they will pray with you. They may even say, I warn you not to go in that direction. When David Hawking takes a look at the account of this temptation that David has, he takes a look at Bathsheba and can't imagine her in such a ultra-modest culture being naive of her role in the whole thing. See, she's bathing in her backyard in full view of every rooftop that surrounds her house. 
She's probably even seen the king on the rooftop, maybe playing with his children, laughing, having a good time, maybe sitting with his many wives. It's a great possibility that she could see him because he could see her. The thing is that that neither Scripture nor Nathan accuses her of any sin. Our pastor, Phil, says David's sin is such a high-handed sin that anything, any naivete or plan in her heart is so small in comparison to his sin that it doesn't even hold a candle to it. God wants us to know how high-handed David's sin is. His sins become so bad that it's the same thing. Remember in chapter 8, the end of the chapter said twice, God gave him all of his victories, and he's saying, I'm going to do this sin. And that's the way the Lord saw it. So any part Bathsheba would have had doesn't even compare. So the first strike against David, he breaks the 10th commandment. Tell you what, when you look at it, it seems awful small. Thou shalt not covet. If I covet your Harley Davidson, you probably will not know it. It's in my mind. You cannot see it, but I think about that Harley every day. When I turn 50, I'm getting a Harley. My wife already knows we're going to go in debt to get that thing. So as he breaks the 10th commandment, nobody sees him. He's plotting and he's planning. He's coveting his neighbor's wife. Ecclesiastes 1 says, The rivers flow into the sea and it is not full. Next he compares your eyes to that river. The eye sees and it is not satisfied. You can covet, you can lust, you can look and stare and want more and more and more, and you will not be satisfied because your eyes will never be filled up with the thing that you desire. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says, No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond which you are able, but... In the temptation will provide a way of escape so that you will be able to endure it. It's amazing. David's walking around on his rooftop, and he sees a strikingly beautiful woman. He has two choices to continue to fill his mind with covetousness after another man's wife or to turn back and go to his bedchambers. It starts off in chapter 11 that King David is staying home, which typical of King David and other warrior kings at that time is to go to battle. But he stopped doing his duty and veered off of course. As I look at it, I wonder, how does temptation just take you all of a sudden? I'm sure that it can. I'm sure that you can be tempted and all of a sudden you're moved and you go with your temptation. But most of the time, don't you plot and plan it? Be honest. You have a desire, a temptation. You're going to sin, and you made up your mind that you're going to do it. You've plot and you've planned it. Isn't it kind of amazing that this didn't happen while all the men were in town? They all happened to be gone to war. All the able-bodied young men were gone, so the streets were pretty much empty. Nobody could see David's commerce going back and forth. Not only that, Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, was not in town. It's set up so good to follow the plot that David has pondered in his heart. Be aware of the temptation, because when that temptation becomes lust, all of a sudden you have tunnel vision. I know most of you guys are pretty relaxed and I'm not going to have you jump up and down, but I just want you to do this real quick for just a second. Just put your hand over your eyes. That's tunnel vision. When lust has taken over, I see you're not doing it. Put your hands up there. (laughs) I'm kidding. I'm kidding, Gary. (laughs) So as you're looking out, you're getting tunnel vision. This is what lust does to you. 
all of a sudden, the only thing that you have in your sights is a thing that you want, and you're willing to sin to get that. All of a sudden, you started not seeing. You started ignoring those that love you, those that are around you. You even forget that your children are there that might see you. You even forget that the wife of your youth, the one that you said is the love of your life, is there watching you. You don't see him anymore. And you know who else you don't see? Ah, the lover of your soul. The captain of your soul. You don't see him anymore. You've raised your fist and said, I'm going for this sin. This is what I want. I'm going to do it. And that tunnel vision cuts you off from all your relationships around you. We're blinded by the lust. You're sitting right here in your right mind. I think. I hope. You're sitting here in your right mind. You are not going to commit adultery right now. You're not going to commit a murder right now. But it could be done in one night. In one night, it could be done. Even with all the warnings. Isn't it amazing how you can ignore all the warnings? When you commit fornication or adultery, there's a one in four chance you can walk away with a venereal disease. That keeps you from doing it. But when you become so lustful after the thing that you want, you ignore that consequence. One in four chance you can get a woman pregnant in a fornication or adultery. You ignore it. You ignore everything, all the warnings, all the things that would keep you going in that direction. Almost you've become insane. You've become so controlled by something else that is not the Spirit of God. The sin has started to control and dictate to your life. We're coming up on strike two with David. Covetousness, strike one. Adultery, strike two. It's amazing. King David is sitting there. He's going, this is why I think he planned it. Come on. It's like, Hmm, I see my neighbor who's a stone's throw away. Who is that woman? It's his neighbor. He can see it as a stone's throw away, and he's saying, who is that woman? And the answer is almost sarcastic. Is that not Bathsheba? Don't you know that, O king, your neighbor? Isn't that the wife of Uriah, the Hittite, a mighty warrior among your people? The daughter of Eliam, a mighty warrior in your people, the granddaughter of Ahithophel, an advisor to you, one of the most beautiful women that we've ever set our eyes on, and you've never noticed that that is Bathsheba? Oh, who is that? Send her a message. Tell her, come on over. The king wants to see her. James 1.14 but each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. He sends for Bathsheba. But notice as you read chapter 11, how many times it's echoed throughout the chapter. Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah. You wonder how many people warned the king. He's the king, so maybe only one. It's Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah. You know as you head down the path of sin and following after your lust that there are warning signs that God gives a way of escape. He could have stopped the messenger after he heard that she is a married woman. But he sends for her and lays with her. But something else comes up, strike three. He broke the seventh commandment. Now he's going to break the, break the sixth commandment. He's going to murder Uriah. No sin makes sense. It never does. But this one baffles me. Why kill Uriah the Hittite? No one would ever accuse David or think that David was involved when he got back and his wife is pregnant. It doesn't make any sense. He's been a just king. He's been a good king. He's been mealing out justice his whole term. And the people love him. 
He wouldn't be suspected. Maybe if the guards talked about it, somebody sees your sin. Even if the guards talked about it, this is a mighty warrior king. You think somebody's going to come up and put their finger in his face and say, you did it? Uh Uh-uh. Not against this king. There's no way. He could have got away with it scot clean. But he became desperate and started making desperate decisions. He wanted to get ahead of the consequences of his sin. He wanted to cover his sin. And he wanted to do it so nobody would find out. So he started making desperate decisions as a desperate man. If you are desperate, do not make decisions without counsel. Get counsel for the decisions you're about to make. Because a desperate person will probably make Desperate decisions that will bring consequences. Have you heard these desperate decisions being made? My boyfriend wants to have sex, and he's going to leave me, so I'm going to go ahead to keep him. My marriage is on the rock, so I better have a kid. Isn't that insane? (laughs) My marriage is all messed up. Let's have a baby, honey. Get counsel. I don't have enough to make it for the rent this month. No one will miss the money out of the till. I'll put it back later. You can be desperate at no fault of your own, but don't make desperate decisions. Get counsel. If David would have gotten counsel, do you think he would have continued with this sin? If I called Edwin and said, Edwin, I'm about ready to fall, brother. You think I should do it? What's his response going to be? <laughs> oh, don't be a fool. The Lord loves you. He paid a price for you. You don't have any right to do that. Don't sin against the God who loves you. Call upon his name. Matter of fact, Sean, while you're there on the phone telling me about your stupidity, let me pray for you. If David would have sought counsel, he probably would have gotten wise counsel. He had godly men around him. It's amazing what lengths we'll go to to cover our sin. We often get involved with bigger and bigger sins, and we can't cover it. We try to outsmart God, outsmart the consequences, but we just get deeper and deeper into it. I I want want to pick this message apart. David sends Uriah back. Um, Pastor Tim was talking to me about it earlier. In that message, it's a death sentence. What a loyal man. What a loyal man to his king, to the army he's fighting with, to the God of Israel. He's so loyal. The king put a seal on that, and he didn't open it. He took his death sentence right to Joab. And Joab looks at it. You've got to pick this apart, though. You've got to look, kind of read between the lines. He's, Joab is given the message to send Uriah to the front lines to be killed. Joab looks at that message. He sends them has him killed, and he sends the message back. And in that message, when he's sending it back, basically he is saying, King, that was the stupidest thing that a seasoned commander would do on a battlefield, and you made me do it, and I look like a fool. I look like a fool because that was a stupid move to push Uriah up to the gate to be killed. Why is it stupid? Because we learned through Abimelech that a woman could be up there and push a millstone over and crush his skull. You can't get that close to the wall. But I did it, O king, to obey your commands. David sends back the message and says, don't be bothered by it. He didn't send back a message, wow, Uriah was a great man. I'm sorry he fell in battle. He said, don't be bothered with it. Sword falls on one man, it falls on another man. I'm not too worried. I'm covering up a plot here, Joab. Don't mess it up. I believe that Joab is also telling the king, I think you're fighting like a woman. Oh, king, Uriah is going to die like Abimelech did. Oh, king, you're sitting behind a wall 
ordering a man to be killed. You're not even facing your own enemies. You're not out here as a warrior fighting, but you've ordered a man to be killed while you sit behind a wall, just like the woman behind the wall rolled a millstone over and killed Abimelech. By the way, it goes on. There's two stories going on, the war and the cover-up with Bathsheba. During that time, Joab is going to seize the city. He told him, seize the city, take it. It'll encourage your heart over the loss and over your humiliation of fighting a war in such a way. So as he goes in to take the city, he calls, sends a messenger to David and says, Oh, king, get off your haunches. Come out here and fight like a man. Be a warrior and take the city because if you don't, I'm going to claim the city and the crown for myself and it won't be yours. Wow. Wow. It's amazing how anyone can say, have you heard it before? I'm not hurting anyone. Whatever I'm doing, it doesn't hurt anyone. It's just myself. A little bit of drugs, a little bit of alcohol, adultery. It's just me. I'm not hurting anybody. It's amazing how we can justify our sins. It's wrong for you to do, but I don't think it's wrong for me. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, is what the flesh desires really sin in this case? In my case... Is it really sin? Maybe it is for you, but it's not for me. Oh, be aware of the consequences. Bonhoeffer goes to say, flee youthful lust, flee fornication, flee adultery, flee the lust of the world. There is no defense against the schemes of Satan other than flight. Every struggle against lust in one's own strength is doomed to failure. The Lord says, flee. There was a guy messing with me in high school, and he was bugging the bejeebies out of me. Holy smokes. If I was as big as him, I would have clocked him, but I wasn't. Have you guys know Grant? He's got the thickest neck here, right? You know Grant? You don't hit a guy with a big, thick neck. His head doesn't go anywhere. You break your knuckles. It just doesn't work. So to get out of this fight, I had to think quick. Big guy. You know what I mean? Tough. He's going to whoop me right now, and i got to get out of this. So I told him, I go, okay, look, I'm going to fight you. I'm going to fight you, no doubt about that. But you got to promise me one thing. Make one promise right now. He goes, okay, Geesey, what is it? Promise me you're not going to run. Okay, I won't run from you. There's no way I'm going to run. I'm going to slaughter you right now, Sean. And I go, good, because if you don't run, you can't catch me. Your temptations are too big for you to handle. Flee. They're going to clobber you. The only thing that you have strength to do is run before it catches you and clobbers you and takes you to a place of destruction, a place of sin and death, and there's no escape. Flee. It's too big for you. Matthew 26 gives us a formula, another one. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is too weak to fight it. But you can flee. You can watch. Peter says, Satan roars around looking for you, wanting to devour you. Flee. It is too big for you to handle. Watch. You know how a gazelle gets caught? Because a roaring lion doesn't roar, it sneaks up on its prey to pounce it. Satan wants to pounce you. Watch. Be alert. Pray. And when you see the temptations coming, flee. So this is the havoc so far that David's caused. He covets another man's wife. It seems small. It's only in his mind. But if a guy came up to you and says, man, I want that guy's wife. You would be offended. You would know it's an offense. It's a sin against the Lord. The second thing he does, he commits adultery. And then he murders a man. Not only that, while Uriah is being slaughtered, other men die next to him. Because they're trying to cover it up. 
The end of the chapter said, But the thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. That's all the consequences David gets for that. It was evil. It was bad. Shame on you. Don't do it again. All is well. He marries Bathsheba, the woman of his desires. They're going to have a baby. Wow, how precious. And she gets to move into the harem. All the women in here, you want to move into a harem, right? The hope of your life. Here it is, most beautiful woman around, and she gets to move into his harem. Hear this. This is what David Hawkins' mentor used to tell him. God's wheels grind slowly, but they grind exceedingly fine. During the next nine months, it seems like David has covered up all of his sins, and he's getting away with it. Then the knock comes on the palace door, and the announcement is made. Nathan, the prophet of Jehovah, wishes your audience, O king. Nathan walks into the room. We're going to go to um, Samuel chapter 12 and read a few verses here. The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and he even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, Surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, You are that man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword. And took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house. Because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I am going to bring calamity upon you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to the one is close to you. And he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. You did this in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. Wow. The Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. But because... By doing this, you have made the enemies of the Lord show utter contempt. You've made the enemies of the Lord blaspheme his name. The son born to you will die. Scripture tells us and warns us, be sure your sins will find you out. You can't hide them. I may not see them. Your wife may not see him. Your best friend may not see him. The Lord sees him, and he'll bring you into account. The sentence that David gave was pretty heavy. That man that took that lamb from that poor man, his audacity, his arrogance, his pride, he deserves to die. But at least he'll pay four times 
the worth of that lamb. So David paid four times for the death of Uriah. The baby died. Absalom takes revenge and kills his brother Amnon. Absalom tries to take the kingdom. 20,000 men die. And Absalom is killed. Adonijah is put to death by Solomon for his evil request. He said, if someone close to you, because of the neighbor, someone who's close to you, you did this sin. Someone who is even closer than a neighbor is going to sin against you by taking your wives onto the same rooftop that you lusted after Bathsheba, and he is going to make love to your wives in the broad daylight for all of Israel to see. When he was told these things, it was too much for him to bear. He said, I have sinned against the Lord. Talking with Grant, he brought up the point that the sword never leaves the house of David. About 1,400 years later, his great-grandson is crucified on a cross. Man, when you're reading this, weren't you rooting for David? When Pastor Otato was speaking about him, going through the trials, hanging in there, being tough, just a poor shepherd boy, accomplishing great things by the help of the Lord, obedient to the Lord. Some of his psalms said, when I was a youth, I repented of my sins, and you forgave me of my sins. He was quick to repent. He was quick to flee from temptation. Isn't he a man that you just want to cheer on? Man, you're rooting for David. But this story seems too tragic for such a great guy. Seems too much. They become overwhelmed by it. How can this man who loves God with all of his heart, mind, and soul commit murder, commit adultery, high-handed sins against God? Oh, I'm sad that it's in here and that we have to see it, but in a way, it gives me hope that my own sins can be forgiven. I love the Lord. You love the Lord. Your sins can be forgiven because you're a child of the Savior. Repent and return to your first love. It's amazing. Nathan said, as soon as David said it, I've sinned against the Lord. Nathan said, your sins have been removed. Wow. He deserved to be stoned for adultery. When God set up the law, he did not put the king above the law. He deserved death for killing Uriah. His sins were pardoned, but his consequences were still there. See, the Lord says, if you are my child, I will discipline you. Hebrews chapter 12 The Lord disciplines the one he loves. He scourges his children. He will not let you go if you've sinned. Thank you, Lord. I don't want the discipline, but I know that you love me and you care because you discipline me because of my sins. He said, David, you're getting such a great consequence for your sins and discipline Because you've caused my enemies to blaspheme my name. The only thing David could do at this point is write Psalm 32 and write Psalm 51. The sins were too great for him to bear. The consequences of the discipline was too great for him to bear. But it's amazing. He still turned to the Lord. He didn't flee from him. He didn't keep running from him. He turned to the love of the Savior because he'd rather fall into the hands of a God who loved him than in the hands of his enemies. A minute ago I mentioned that there's people that say this sin doesn't bother anybody. It's only for me. It's only against me. I don't hurt anybody. I'm going to give you a, what's happened at Mount Hermon. 
Lizzie's my sister-in-law, and she's taking the kids down to the um, camp, kids' camp. And while she's going, she sees a three-year-old little girl laying down by the speed bump in the middle of the street. Three-year-old laying down. And she saw a woman go over to her and tell her, get up. Get, it's dangerous. Don't, don't lay down by the speed bump. And Lizzie said, the little girl was so sweet. She looked up and said, leave me alone. <laughs> I like laying here by the speed bump. It's pretty. And the woman walked away. It's her choice. She wants to lay by the speed bump in the middle of the street. There's cars going back. It's okay. It's what she wanted to do. I don't want to offend a little girl. Lizzie walked over there like a mother should. Grabbed that little girl's arm and picked her up and drug her to the side, kicking and screaming, and told her, little girl, you will not do this. Move out of the way of the oncoming traffic because that Mack truck is going to run you over and crush your life. If you have a friend who is contemplating sin or you can see them heading in that direction, don't just go, oh, it's your choice. I believe in Jesus. It's okay. Oh, that sin is going to destroy their life. That Mack truck of sin is going to crush them, warn them. All of this, we need to look at Psalm 32. The consequences are too heavy. The sin is too much. Take a flip over to Psalm 32. You want to know know why David's a man after God's own heart? Because here's his confession. Blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is a man whose sin the Lord does not count against him, and whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, my strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. You think that David covered all of his sins? That he got away with it? He didn't have any fellowship with the Lord for those nine, ten months a year. He kept silent and he wasted away in his flesh. The hand of the conviction of the Lord was too heavy for him. When Nathan came to him, it was a relief. It was a godsend because he was able to open up and confess his sin. It was probably like rushing waters. I get to get all of this gunk, all this putrid sin out into the open. And what a relief it is because my bones were wasting away and I could not handle my sins anymore. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. The Lord forgives our sins. First John, we'll flip over, flip over to Psalm 51 real quick. First John says, Don't sin. Just don't do it. Don't. But by chance, if you happen to sin, we have an advocate on your behalf. Confess your sins because your advocate is faithful and just and will forgive you your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. It's amazing. He forgives and cleanses from all unrighteousness and as David says, does not hold our sin against us. If the Lord held our sin against us, who could stand? Who could stand? Psalm 51, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to the great compassion. 
blot out all my transgressions. Your transgressions can be forgiven. If you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, you can be forgiven of all of your sins. If you are here a child of the Lord and has sinned against him, I have. As a child of God, as his son, I've sinned against my Father in heaven. But he will blot out all of my transgressions when I confess my sins. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Second Samuel goes on to recount David's life. Things do get back to order in his life, but there was consequences of his sin. He worshiped the Lord again, rebuilt the relationship with the Lord, knew his Savior intimately again. Things were set right. Things can be set right in your life, even though your sin may have caused havoc in your life. The Lord could set things on a right path again. Holy Father, I have read Psalm 32 and 51 since my youth. And I have experienced your forgiveness. I have experienced the weight of my sins being lifted off my shoulders, not because of anything I had done, not because of being great, not from being righteous, but just because you've loved me and you paid the price for my sins and you forgave me. Thank you so much. Thank you so much that you forgive. Thank you for... um, this testimony, this testimony, the horrible things that happen because of lust and desires, but you are a God who still forgives your children. Let us call upon the name of the Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to continue worshiping now through our giving. I know that to some that's a mystery, but some have not yet maybe entered into the joy.